So good morning everyone and welcome back. And um, uh, there was a lot of good cheer here this morning, uh, for the most part, except Paul and I were just discussing impossible topics. (laughs) 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 The The meaning of certain (laughs) Polly words. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I'm very happy to, and it's related to the topic for today, which is um, uh, Sheila, Sila, ethics. It's the um, uh, second of the paramis. And uh, it's meant to be a beautiful and uh, happiness-producing topic. The, uh, that uh, somehow it, ethics is related to some of the best places within us. Uh, so the, refer- the reference point for it is goodness within us, not some external rules that uh, you're kind of contending with or never able to live up to. The, the, I, I think of the, like the precepts as being uh, mirrors for that which is best within us. And that uh, to practice and have access to something that's really profoundly good within us. Some people describe it as a, a degree of pur- purity, purification. Some people might describe it as goodness. Some people might describe it as... Uh, uh, freedom and liberation, a profound sense of peace. But that uh, in Buddhism, that the idea of our liberation, the movement towards lab- liberation, is inseparable from uh, the cultivation development of ethics and, and, uh, and integrity. It's so integral that we sometimes talk about the path of liberation in Buddhism. That path could just as equally be called the, the path of ethical maturation. The two are not separate from each other. It's just that some people prefer to emphasize the liberation part. And uh, if we do an introduction to liberation at IMC, many people will come. If we do an et- introduction to ethics, um, uh, not as many people would come. More people are coming now since 2016 for that kind of topic. But uh, 10 years ago, I tried to do this, and very few people would come to things about ethics. But something's changed in our society now. And it's a much more, uh, people, many more people are acutely concerned with this topic and want to learn it. It's important for chaplains because um, um, you want to be able to come from the best, best, best of who you are inside. You want to be able to come from that place that will give you the greatest ease, the greatest uh, sense of freedom, the greatest uh, place of integrity. So the work is sustainable. Uh, also because uh, who you are is as important or maybe more important than what you do as a chaplain. And so to show up, you know, centered and grounded in yourself is part of your message, is part of what you have to offer. And to be centered in ethical goodness, to have a, some, some connection to it uh, and to understand that domain will m- make you a better chaplain for yourself and also a better chaplain for the people you encounter. Don't underestimate how much people are picking up by osmosis. Uh, there's things that people are picking up from you that's not what you say and what you visibly do, perhaps, but you know, it's almost like you know, there's much more subtle cues that come out of you that you're not even conscious of that uh, have to do with what we could call in English ethics, your ethical integrity or your inner goodness or something like that. Generally, people who do this kind of work, I would say, um, have more goodness than they realize. 
and at the same time, they're more likely to feel that they're not good enough. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, you know, with this as we go through the discussions today. Uh, we'll have uh, uh, a guest teacher today coming for the second half of the morning, uh, Dajaku Kinst, who is a uh, Zen priest, came in coming out of San Francisco Zen Center, now in Santa Cruz. And uh, she uh, trained as a cha- to be a chaplain. She did CPE. And for many years now has been uh, in charge of the chaplaincy training program, kind of academic program, at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. And uh, so she's a dynamic and very interesting and deep woman who she'll come and talk about um, the kind of the Buddhist approach to her, her sense, her, her, her idea of the Buddhist approach to chaplaincy. And, um, and then uh, after lunch, Christina will do a piece on ethics as a chaplain. And, uh, and I'll do a piece later on on, on uh, guided, meditation. guided meditation, which is, uh, um, could, could if, you, if you care for this kind of language, could be seen as a subset of prayer. But if you're allergic to prayer, then it's not, nothing to do with prayer at all. Mm-hmm. No connection. Whichever you like. And um, so um, we'll start now with a little meditation. And I'd like to, be, partly because uh, in the afternoon we'll do a little piece on guided meditation, I'd like to do this as a guided meditation, kind of as a little bit of demonstration of one way that this can be done. beginning guiding someone in meditation it's often useful to get them here to remind them that we're going to be in this place at this time and to settle in to somehow relax so you might take a few long slow deep breaths and the deep inhalation as this rib cage stretches is a reminder to be connected to your body. And perhaps a little longer and fuller exhale is a time to relax the body. And for a few moments more, deeper inhales and exhales, kind of like giving yourself a massage from the inside.
and then letting your breathing return to normal. And take some few moments more to connect more to your body. Let your attention roam around your body as a way of noticing it more, being here more through your body. And if you notice any holding in your muscles, you might see if you can soften, relax those muscles. Softening the muscles of the face, around the eyes, Perhaps softening around the shoulders. softening the belly. And then to continue this connecting to yourself here and now through your body, take a few moments to experience how the body feels, experiences, breathing. What's the, body, what's the body's own experience of the inhalations and exhalations? The rhythm? Of breathing? perhaps as you exhale to let go of your thoughts to let, let them go gently as if they're thought bubbles that can float away Perhaps every 
ever so slightly at the end of the exhale, allow the exhale to continue slightly. Not forcing it to continue, but almost as if you're letting go a teeny bit. So for a fraction of a moment, you exhale more than you would have otherwise. As if you're hanging in there with the exhale. Letting your mind become quieter so you can stay attuned, stay aligned with the end of the exhale. Letting go of your breathing. See if you can recall some time in your life where you felt particularly peaceful, content, safe, settled. Perhaps some kind of glow of love or compassion or goodness. Perhaps a time when you felt whole or felt particularly connected to yourself in a good way. Some way of being that could be described as wholesome or imbued with goodness coming from your inner goodness. A way of being from which it would be natural to be ethical. To be uninterested in causing harm of any kind. And if you can recall what that felt like to be this way. What it felt like in your body. Is there some part, some place in your body that seemed to most manifest this feeling of goodness?
some place inside that it lives for you. And if it does, perhaps you can breathe through that space, that part of your body. Breathe through it, breathe with it. Perhaps open into this place in your body. thinking mind become quieter so you can better sense and feel this place within you. you a contemplative question, which is a question that we just drop into you. And you don't have to think about an answer. You could if you want. But you might also just tune in and see what responds inside of you when the question is posed. From whatever was touched in you, whatever you touched in this meditation, your own goodness, wholesome place within, what advice do you have for yourself? meditation. You can take a few long, slow, deep breaths because how you come out of meditation or how you guide people out is important. And as you take some deep breaths to feel your body, feel your body against the chair or the floor, and remember where you are at IMC and are surrounded by participants in the chaplaincy program. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
So we'll discuss guided meditations more this afternoon, but that was also a way of connecting to our topic today, so it's practical for the program. But it was also a demonstration of one way of doing a guided meditation that um, could be done in such a way to connect someone to some quality, inner quality that has some value, be nice to connect to, and also uh, to support people to find their own wisdom. Rather than giving them your wisdom, uh, help people sometimes to find something that might come out uh, that might be beneficial, be helpful for them. And that way you're not imposing something on people, but you're just supporting them to find out, you know, know, for for them to have a process of self-discovery. So thank you. Do you want to chair? Okay. So as Gil was so wonderfully saying, um, Sila, virtue, you know, this uh, kind of a wholesomeness that um, can profoundly influence our, how we're relating internally and how we're relating externally. In how in Buddhist practice, that's uh, in many ways the guiding principle. And then out of that, we can think of a whole variety of attributes. And in in Buddhist teachings, they're all there. There's there's morality, there's ethics, there's skillful responses. There is prohibitions. Um, There is rules of conduct in a gradated way. You know, here's here's grievous prohibitions to uh, to act against one of these prohibitions is very serious. And then there's minor ones, they're more like decorum. Um, to, to not comply with one of these is mm. an indiscretion, you know? Maybe you should say, oops. <laughs> um, 
and they're all guided by that virtuous quality, you know, a wholesomeness. Maybe we could even say a wholeheartedness. And I would say even something that that links to enthusiasm. You know, there's a way when we start to touch something in ourselves and the nobility of spirit, you know, when you experience the generosity just flowing, you know, This is some exquisite combination between almost like relief, you know. Oh, that that fearful, self-serving, holding back has paused, has dropped away. What a relief! (laughs) And, And and the giving and the receiving are flowing, you know. Like you're, you're being generous, you're tending to someone's needs, someone's suffering, but at the very same time, you're feeling nourished, like I am receiving more than I'm giving. Yeah. And it stirs something up within us. And it stirs up um, in, in Buddhist terms, the other paramis, you know, but but they're not there as impositions. They're they're almost like the quality of them. When we, when that virtue is well established, they're almost more like celebrations. You know. When, when the heart is open like that, uh, I remember when my daughter was twelve. She she volunteered at Zen Hospice. And, and one of the patients there at the time was uh, notably grumpy. A- and she was assigned to take care of this very elderly lady who was notably grumpy. And I was a little concerned. Um, and I asked my daughter, is this okay? And she said, of course it's okay. I mean, she has a lot of physical suffering. Of course she's grumpy. <laughs> Her attitude was, this is just how it is for her. Why would that be a problem? Why would I feel offended or in some ways uh, impinged upon? You know, that kind of virtue, you know, that's, that the stuff of our karmic life doesn't conjure up an animosity, you know, a reactiveness. In the early suttas, it would say, almost like in an inscrutable way, that which furthers, you know, that which furthers that blossoming of the human spirit, or that which doesn't further. Huh? Oh. You know, we could even think of um, 
and certainly within Buddhist practice, that that is a defining characteristic of um, our behavior. You know? Can we behave in a way that awakening flourishes, that liberation is enhanced and the reactiveness that inhibits that liberation is diminished. And when we come at it like that, it's so different from, you know, how we might take on prohibitions. Don't do that, and don't do that, you know. It's more like saying, oh, please remember what makes you happy. Please remember how to flourish. Uh, Please remember that as an internal process, and please remember that as a way to engage others and the whole world. Discipline as the disciple who follows the path. And sometimes it's it's characterized as a kind of a purification. Yeah. And for most of us, from a background, religious or even otherwise too, of there's good and there's bad, you know, and. You should do good, and you should avoid bad. And if you do bad, there's kind of a punishment that comes with it. But how that kind of morality can have quite easily a harshness to it that can then be separate from the benevolence of uh, sila. And how would we stay closer to the benevolence? Um, it, it's a it's a friendlier proposition, you know. We're more inclined towards it. You know? like if you think of the the kind of emotional difference between this is something I should impose upon myself because it's the right thing to do, versus um, this is what really uh, makes me happy in a very deep and profound way. Mm-hmm. Very different notion, has a different feeling tone. Um. And then we can think of, you know, in the monastic system, in, in East and West, th- there are different structures set up and, and there's different guidelines with regards to them. You know? Like in, in some structures, east and west in the monastic system, um, just do whatever you want within certain limitations, you know, the, what you might call the basic ethics, you know, don't, don't harm 
uh, in how or the way so that can happen. And stay true to the central theme of sila. And then in other monastic systems, it's like, no, we're going to structure every part of the day. Yeah. There's certain Christian traditions where you get up twice in the middle of the night to participate in the communal prayers. Um, In the monastic systems uh, of both Southeast Asia, like places like Thailand, and then more Mahayana style, China and Korea and Japan, they have very structured systems. And it's interesting because in Southeast Asia, the rules of conduct are about personal conduct. You know? this, is, this is how you should behave. And then in the Mahayana, there is, this is how we behave collectively. You know? and, and both attending to and, and virtue, sila covers this, the, the internal process. You know? How to be how to help virtue flourish internally, and then how to let virtue flourish interpersonally. And then as a chaplain, you know, inevitably we enter into circumstances we can't tell in advance. When I go into this room, how's it going to be? You know, whether it's a prison meditation group, or the ER, or the ICE, the intensive care unit, you know. Um, so what do we bring? You know, how do we bring the, the virtue of trusting, being in the moment, of being open and receptive and giving, um, of being a skillful response? Why wouldn't she be grumpy? She's suffering. Like when my daughter said that, I just thought, yeah. <laughs> it's so obvious when you say it. <laughs> but I had cooked up all these ideas around, uh, around that. Um, So as a chaplain, you enter into a situation in that internal virtue. And then through working with the paramis to discover the skillfulness, the upaya, the appropriateness of the moment of this interaction. Um, The the guidelines, the principles by which it should be engaged. No? And then you find, uh, you know, w- when you go into a prison, there, there's all sorts of guidelines. When you go into a hospital setting, there's all sorts of guidelines. And how can we, as Buddhist chaplains, um, experience them 
as an extension of sila, you know, an adaptation of sila for that environment. I remember going to a prison conference once and there was an extraordinary presentation by a warden, a prison warden, who was also a long-term Buddhist practitioner. And he said, please remember, security is is the number one principle of running a prison. That's what we always have in our mind. Is there going to be security, you know? Is everything going to stay orderly, contained, safe? And then, of course, um, we add to that beautiful um, concept, that beautiful sensibility, our karmic behavior, you know. And and then we bring in um, skillful prohibitions. And as I said, you know, in early Buddhism, when you look at the paramoksha, the rules of conduct for monks and nuns, you know, there's hundreds of them, and they're broken into categories. These are very, very serious, and, and if you break one of these, you'll be asked to leave, if you kill somebody. Uh, these are serious, and if you break one of these, the whole sangha will have to come together and resolve it with you. Uh, if you break one of these, you should tell a fellow monk or nun that that's what happened. No. The other day you said something to me, and I was quite reactive, and I apologize. No. For that reactiveness. Okay, thanks for telling me. It's done. No. Um, and sometimes that differentiation is helpful for us, you know. Um, and I would say similarly, in whatever environment we're in, to kind of know that, you know, in this environment, this is a big deal. You know? like in, in some prison environments, any contact at all with the prisoners is a big deal. Okay, that's how it is. Hmm? Uh, and similarly with hospitals. Hmm. And here's what we're going to d- discuss in groups in a moment. Like what fosters and what hinders your internal sila? Where do you run into trouble? Internally. And then similarly, interactively. Like certain kinds of people, certain kinds of situations. And just think of where your chaplaincy is 
and think. Um, I think that rule is kind of irrelevant, you know. Why can't you just give someone a hug, you know? It's, it's, it's a wonderful way to connect. And in that hostile environment, what could be more wonderful than having someone tenderly hug you? Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll break into groups of threes. But before we do, if you can just, as best you can, touch back into um, Gill's guided meditation. You know, um, connecting deeply. And in that connecting deeply, You know, in some ways, our hearts desire this uh, virtuous nobility. You know, that open-hearted, courageous open-heartedness in which our generosity, our caring, just flows. It's not an imposition on ourselves. It just arises. You know, um, What for you, quite particularly, what, what nurtures it and, and what dissipates it or hinders it, you know? Are there any fixed attitudes or prejudices? <coughs> and with the same matter-of-factness of my 12-year-old daughter, you know, it's like, well, that's just how it is. That's causes and conditions. It's not a fatal flaw. It's just something to be radically honest about and attend to and learn from and discover how to be skillful with. And then when you go into your, the environment in which you're a chaplain, you know, what about the deliberate spoken code of ethics? And maybe just what about the culture of it? You know? And again, what parts do you resonate deeply with? And then what parts do you struggle with? I'm not so sure I think that's what should happen. I have a bit of an attitude about it. Okay? And maybe for convenience we could do it in threes. And just three, 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 and wait around the room. One group of four. And one group of four. Maybe at this end or two to four, just for convenience. Okay? By um, each person taking a couple of minutes, and, and then just go around like that, and then uh, back and forth after that. You're going to talk about internally what fosters sila, virtue for you, and, and where do you struggle with it. And then 
you're going to take the same notion and you're going to think of where you do chaplaincy and um, where do you, where do you find ease and support for the rules and regulations, code of ethics, or however they describe it in that institution? And then where maybe do you struggle with it? Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with the internal, the personal. Um, Thank you. Oh yeah. Somebody's role is to either read the group agreements or ask someone else to read them. Does anyone have anyone know who they are? Is that who that person is? Or or who has them? Copy. So can can we have a volunteer? To read what? I have a copy here. Great. Oh, you, you read it last time, right? With Great and Gusto. I, I think I probably did, so someone yeah. else can read it this time. Yeah, story. with. Great. With, with a certain degree of. Uh, Thanks. Authority. Cha- <laughs> clerical authority. <laughs> and maybe given the occasion. A, a sort of a, a virtuous quality too. <laughs> that you're, you're, you're not scolding us, you're just asking us to bring forth our best. I think you're asking for miracles. <laughs> <laughs> Group agreements, try on, a new process, ideas, perspectives before automatically rejecting them because they are different than your own experience. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone. It's okay to disagree. Disagreement is a necessary part of accepting differences. It's not okay to attach or blame self or others. This can happen on a verbal or nonverbal level. Practice self-focus. Use I statements. Pay attention to what you are feeling and thinking. Ask questions of self and other Instead of jumping to conclusions, check out your own assumptions. Notes. Giving advice is the vampire of spiritual care. He can choose to use I prefer no feedback as code. Practice both in thinking and speaking. There are multiple realities of each person present. The notion of either or right or wrong good or bad, is not helpful in human relationships. It sets up a hierarchy of values. 100% responsibility. You know more than anyone what you need. Let go of all the other things that you need to be doing and to be present in this process. Participation looks different for everyone. Be aware of how you learn and process information. Intent versus impact. There is a difference between what we intend and what the impact is on the other. 
It is important to accept when the impact is negative and seek to understand why without jumping to explanation or apology. Assume benevolence of intent. Maintain confidentiality. Anything said of personal nature cannot be shared without the permission of the other person. If you want to talk to someone about what they said, ask for permission. They can say yes, no, or maybe later. Move up, move back. Be aware of how much you are speaking. If you feel you are speaking a lot, let others speak. Ask yourself, wait, why am I talking? If you find yourself not talking, try to contribute. kind of interesting that we, we start with an ethics statement as an introduction to our conversation about ethics. <laughs> um, so, intrapersonally, uh, what helps, what hinders the blossoming of your virtue? What inspires it? Um, what stimulates a contraction or reactiveness? And maybe if you could say your name as you speak, just to help us all get to know each other's names. I'm Amanda. And um, so something that helps is when I recognize that we're all trying at the same thing, that we're all working, coming from that place of virtue, and you see it connect is just really, it's, it's, it's inspiring and helpful and keeps things moving. And also when I am unsure if working from that place is being received well, I don't know, and then I get little signals that it's coming together always really helps okay like stay in this place get rid of the second guessing and just roll with it and stay mindful and present in it so it's nice to get little signals that that's reciprocal something that hinders for me is when there are outside rules that dictate black and white ethics like even when they're probably right just the fact that I have someone telling me, like, no analysis here, no feeling, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, like, my mind immediately wants to challenge it and be like, well, is, is that true? And maybe it's not. And so it'll, that kind of, when that comes into play, even when, without that, I would probably naturally be like, yeah, of course, maybe, inside, you know, when someone tells me that as, like, a rigid rule, I push against it.
just feels so high pressure. <laughs> just like, oh, in the middle. Um, I'm Adam. I didn't share this in my group because it just came based on what you just shared. Um, but I was thinking about when I was younger, how I would steal stuff and how I didn't do it because I needed to eat or anything. But um, I would let, like I was living at a community center and we would like, the 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 zoning people were like um, kind of strategically not passing us through code because we were um, we were some radical folks that were serving populations that in the city didn't care that much about living where we were living and so they were really giving us a hard time and we were like well fine we'll we'll update our our toilet seats on our on our public restrooms by going to steal them at the local private university. And so it felt like, it was like, well, if you're not going to be ethical, then we're not going to be ethical. And it, like, it, was, it was like this sort of Robin Hood type, like um, making it right by like being like, well, ha, ha, ha. And um, there still might be some of that there. But I find that like when there's a broader ethical container, um, it's easier for me to see that and um, be motivated to be moved by that myself and how difficult it can be within unethical circumstances like within a prison or within a hospital with some stuff that goes on in hospitals that isn't necessarily always patient-centered to maintain my own kind of compass around that. So for me, I, I had a, a conversation this week with my teacher about, about this. Um, what helps me is when I just ask myself throughout the day, how am I showing up right now? Am I being kind? Am I coming from my heart or my head? And it's kind of a just to check myself and in different situations try to do the same. And where I really practice that a lot is... Um, when I click onto Facebook and I'll ask myself before responding to something, am I being kind? Is it coming from my heart or my head? It's just a practice that really helps me when it comes to ethics and morality. And then what triggers me or gives me pause is, and some of you have said this, when I see lists or when it's when I have to overthink What's morality and, and what's ethical? And to be honest, reading that chapter this last month on Buddhist ethics, um, I had to drag myself through that chapter. And, and it was and when I stopped to, to, to kind of question why am I struggling with this so much, it was the, the trigger I have, I guess, when I'm asked to overthink ethics, morality, and values. And I always want to simplify it and just kind of answer the question, am I being a good person right now, coming from my heart, or am I all caught up in my head and being a rotten person? I'm Emily. Um, 
Hi, everyone. Um, what encourages my sila is simply being around other people that I feel exemplify uh, those characteristics. And it's hugely inspiring. Uh, yeah. When I keep the right company, it definitely encourages my sila. And I don't mean right, like right, but you know what I mean. Um, and a word that came up in our group um, that I really identified with was ego. And that's such a huge hindrance. And the ego comes in all sorts of forms, um, fear, insecurity, defensiveness, um, stress, anger, um, and all of those things are really prohibitive of my sila. I um, cited an example from, uh, from work last week where my sila was challenged um, in a moment of stress and not wanting to be seen having made an error or a number of errors that led to a bigger error. Um, and I very, you know, I had, it was a high intensity moment and I struggled with doing the right thing. Um, and I, it sort of worked out without having to make that decision, but I was on the verge of, um, of betraying my ethics or ethics um, in, term, in order to protect myself in a minor way. Just, <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> Listen, just, wants to speak. There was just a statement that came up in our group that, that I thought was really interesting and will stay with me, is that there's a the Christian thing of, or it's probably universal, I don't know. Um, treat others as you would like to be treated. Um, how about treating others as they would like to be treated? I thought that was just like, oh, that's an interesting twist. Okay. Well, I thought it was novel and, and instructive that I forgot that we read the ethics statement about conducting ourselves in a group before we talked about ethics. You know? <laughs> and, and how this topic, especially if we hold it in a benign and benevolent way, how it, it, it can foster sensibilities that, that, that essentially are intrinsic to our practice, but also help our practice to come into the foreground of our minds and our hearts. So, so maybe as, as we go through the day and as you go through your chaplaincy, you, you, you can hold that notion, oh, this is a gift I can give myself and then through that give to others rather than this is 
some kind of prohibition that limits or controls. Okay, so we'll take a 15 minute break. If you could come back just a little before a quarter two. Thank you. My voice, touch your head. If you can hear the sound of my voice, touch your chest. If you can hear the sound of my voice, touch your stomach. If you can hear the sound of my voice, touch your ear. Okay, great. Did you like that? I saw that done with some some young people. I thought it would I would try it. It seemed like it worked. Welcome back. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to Reverend Jaco Kinst. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. We've invited Jaco to come and teach about, if not the, a Buddhist approach to spiritual care. And if this was a multi-faith chaplain conference, perhaps the next speaker might be, here's a Quaker approach to spiritual care. And the next person might be, here's a reformed Jewish approach to (laughs) spiritual care. So uh, there are, um, within the religious traditions and within each of the denominations, uh, a lot of people who think a great deal about and write about and embody uh, an array of um, values or beliefs and how those are understood in the context of providing care to people when they're in crisis. In some settings, the people receiving care are well aware that of the chaplain ha- representing or having a particular religious identity, and they specifically asked for them. And in other settings, the institution culture is the person coming to offer spiritual care does not disclose their you know, religious affiliation um, unless the person really wants to know. So there's quite a range even around for those receiving care. But in terms of us, those of us providing care, we really need to have a, a conceptual or theoretical framework um, to work from in terms of providing care. Yeah. So we've asked Jocko to come and talk about that. And Jocko is... Um, is it, are you a dean? Chair? Professor, professor, professor. You like professor? Yeah, I. Okay. I don't know. You know, I just got hearing aids, and it sounds like I'm. It's a little loud. We're gonna fix it. Okay, good. Keep talking. Keep talking. It's still. So you don't like the word dean, or you're not a. No, I'm not dean. The dean is thank goodness. Thank goodness. Okay. He's in responsible for all the whole organizational stuff. So professor, I am the Hanyu professor of. Buddhist right. chaplaincy. Yeah, great. So, and I'm on the faculty of the Institute of Buddhist Studies and the Graduate Theological Union. Yes, and you are a Zen priest? Yeah, so a Zen priest and teacher. And you are based in Santa Cruz? My home and my Sanga. temple is in Santa Cruz, Capitola, 41st yeah. Avenue. Yeah. And um, my, I spend a few days a week up in Berkeley. That's where I teach. Great. And 
the Sati Center and the Institute for Buddhist Studies have had a mutually beneficial mm. relationship for uh, quite some time. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we maintain that is to um, speak at each other's programs. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have you, as well as to have you as a wonderful person. Oh, I guess I have something to live up to then. Okay, so welcome. <laughs> I'll let you say anything else about yourself or not. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I don't know what else to say about myself. Uh, I'm the director of the Buddhist Chaplaincy Graduate Program at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. So if you, if any of you are interested in pursuing graduate studies, we're, we're one of the places where you could go to get the 72-unit degree if you want to do professional chaplaincy. If you're interested in that, you can talk to me about it, and I brought information, but that's not kind of the... I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, that's not the focus of what we're doing today. Okay? Okay. So, um, first of all, I would like to... I would like to stop. Okay. I'd like to stop, and I would like us to sit together in silence for a moment. Words are easy. Silence is when we come together. Yeah. May the words and ideas and questions that we explore here together this morning nourish our intention and vow to save all beings. Okay. Um, What I'd like to know now is if you could... I am not going to remember all your names, but I would. Lo- I, w- I think it's important for you to speak your name here to arrive, and uh, for me, and if you could say something about um, uh, just a word of where you're practicing your chaplaincy, or if you are, and um, what your what any pressing questions that you have. Okay, so we're going to start in the auspicious direction with you. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and we're practicing in um, palliative care. Okay. And no quest- no specific questions are coming up, but I'm just excited to hear what you're offering. Okay. Hi, my name's Nadine, and I'm in trainee to be a chaplain at Desert Regional Medical Center in uh, Palm Springs. 
And anything you say would be answering a question for me. (laughs) (laughs) What an open mind. Hi, my name is Amy, and um, I'm trying to volunteer at Stanford Hospital. Uh Um, Although I haven't actually started, I think I might start um, with uh, giving advanced directives next week. Lori Klein. Huh? Lori Klein. She's the head of the department there, really adult. It's Libby, isn't it? I, Lord, I anyway, I've been working with Libby. Hi, I'm Juliana. Um, I do my volunteering um, at a prison in Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to agree with what Nadine said. Um, anything that you say is going to answer a question that I don't know I have yet. So. Okay. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Chuck. and. I'm on a trajectory. I'm doing an MDiv in interfaith uh, chaplaincy at um, Claremont School of Theology, and just uh, sort of I'm interested in hospice work. Uh huh. Okay. My name is Adam. I met you here last year. I'm also in an MDiv program. um, Hopefully going toward hospice chaplaincy. Although beginning hospital chaplaincy in SF at SF General. This mm-hmm. winter. Sojourn? Yeah. Ah, it's a great program. And I've also um, registered for your pastoral care class for next semester. Oh. Yeah. Well, good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> what school are you at? I'm, you I go to Star King. Star King. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dylan, and um, volunteer in the women's, women's jail in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I'm Anita, and next week I'll be at the Elmwood Jail with Dal and Joanna. My name is Dal, and I volunteer at Elmwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll probably have questions after. Okay. <laughs> right now, I'm just like a sieve. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joanne, and um, I'm right now. I'm in a one-on-one chaplaincy experience with a woman who had a stroke earlier mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. and lives in Borden Care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she. Her orientation is uh, Tibetan Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm just learning, you know, what what um, speaks to her. Mm-hmm. My background is uh, uh, Plum Village Zen, uh-huh. and so my question is, like, how much should I steep myself in her interest area, or, you know, should I bring what I mm. have to offer to her, or both? Um, <laughs> So that, thank you. I'm Emily. Um, I am doing hospice palliative care through Zen Hospice at Laguna Honda. Uh huh. So you know Alistair then? Oh, yes. Yeah. He's one of our alums. Yeah. My name is Phil. Um, I've been volunteering at uh, the prison in Soledad, mm-hmm. and um, I will be starting soon. Uh, volunteering at uh, Stanford Hospital as well. Hi, my name is David, and I teach Buddhism and Buddhist meditation in uh, downtown San Jose jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that's uh, uh, the level that's a psych unit. And my question would be, how do you negotiate w- with not, negotiate's the wrong word, but but how do you you field questions? when it comes from people of, uh, like a, of Christian or Islamic faith when it comes to the concept of God? 
when it comes to God? Yeah, when it comes to God, uh-huh. like really point blank. God question. Like, what, what's a Buddhist heaven, or, or you know, uh-huh. and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm Joanna, and I'm working at the Elmwood Jail, mm-hmm. and I'm going to wait to see what questions emerge for me. What, what, what was that? I'll, I'll just wait to see what questions emerge okay. for me. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bob, and I currently volunteer also with the Zen Hospice Project at Laguna, and then in two weeks start at Kaiser Marin in spiritual care department as well. And questions, I'm sure, will arise. Okay. Good morning. I'm Alan, and I'm also with Adam at Star King, going for my Master's of Divinity, and I'm also enrolled in your um, (laughs) chaplain's or Buddhist pastoral care class. So thank you. Um, I don't have any questions at this time, but I'm sure if some come up, I'll make sure that I write them down and ask you in your class next semester. Okay. Hi, my name is Carolee, and I just uh, started training um, at Richmond Kaiser. Mm -hmm. And so I've been shadowing um, both a volunteer who is a graduate of this program and a chaplain. And what's come up is um, we've done a lot of talking about listening but I have seen um, that there seems to be a moment where talking is really uh-huh. important and trying to engage and initiate a connection. So I just thought if you had some words mm-hmm. about how you do that, that would be great. And the other thing that comes up is just um, learning more about contemporaneous prayer. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm going to be um, volunteering with the No One Dies Alone program at oh. UCSF. Mm-hmm. Um, Great. <laughs> to be totally honest, I think I'm still just trying to figure out what the role of a chaplain is uh-huh. and what are the limits of oh, that that's role. Oh, so, that's so great. I'm going to be talking about fu'e, not knowing. Great. So I don't know we're together. <laughs> don't know mine. That's yeah. me. <laughs> Um, I'm Susan, and um, I do a lot of one-on-one work with people in my temple. I'm Tibetan Buddhist, Mm -hmm. and I start volunteering next week, shadowing people at UCD Med Center in Sacramento. Hi. Hi. Uh, My name is Cater, and I met you at the, um, there was a, day long about chaplaincy here a couple years ago, uh-huh. about a year and a half ago in the spring. Yeah, I do tend to pop up every once in a yeah. while. <laughs> <laughs> um, my current chaplaincy is my private practice as a healer, as a craniosacral mm. practitioner, mm-hmm. uh, yoga therapist, and mindfulness teacher. Mm-hmm. I have done a, uh, I've been in hospice. I did that for years and I have attended to by request to individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm really interested right now in a, a, a lack of faith, a crisis of faith, uh-huh. when someone, um, you know, I have one client who just lost a baby, and she's saying, you know, everybody is trying to help me and everyone's saying all these really nice things mm-hmm. and I want them to be true and I don't mm-hmm. believe any of it. Mm-hmm. So why don't they just shut up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's, it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I just listen and then, you know, I 
I might say some things after she's settled down later on in our time together, but I'm, I'm really curious. I have more than one person who, mm-hmm. you know, someone else who's dying of, not yet dying, but who has stage four pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. who also um, is not a faith-based person. Um, but things are changing as I work with her. So I'm just really interested in that mm-hmm. uh, kind of question mark when someone's not coming with a faith practice and mm-hmm. s- opposed to f- talk about faith. Okay. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Hi, I'm Beth. Um, I work as a mental health professional at a nonprofit in the East Bay. And as part of this program, I'm considering um, and meeting people at Laguna Honda. Uh-huh. Um, and so thinking about what, where to put myself. Um, what, I have two questions. One is something Bob Deal said at Laguna Honda when we were talking is that I thought was really interesting. He has a Christian background, and he said, he said the Buddhist patients think I'm Buddhist, and the Christian patients think I'm Christian, and uh-huh. so on and so on. Uh-huh. And so I just wonder if you have any comments about that. Uh-huh. I think that's fascinating. And the other thing is just about for you, like when you think about your collegial relationships with, you, with your colleagues of other faiths, what's your favorite thing about relating to them? Favorite thing yeah. about relating to people of another faith? Yeah, your colleagues of another, your fellow chaplains. Okay, I'll, I'll clarify something yeah. in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Or, or patients as well. Okay. Thank you. I'm Amanda, and I uh, volunteer at a Dual Vocational Institute in Tracy. It's a prison. Um, I'm really interested in getting involved in hospice mm-hmm. and medical work, but I haven't taken any real steps in that direction right mm-hmm. now. Um, my question is about boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from a professional background, I think boundaries are more clear-cut. Mm-hmm. And in this field, I wonder when um, it actually becomes unethical to share too much mm-hmm. or a come off too caring or too personal. <laughs> Good questions. Great. Um, so I'll clarify one thing uh, that's important. I'm, I'm not a chaplain, nor have I ever been a professional chaplain. Um, this is briefly my background is after my priest training, I um, did an, a master's in counseling and was licensed as a, uh, as a psychotherapist. And as a part of the hours that I did for that, I did one unit of CPE. Um, I also uh, founded, uh, as a part of, uh, affiliated with a graduate school where I did my training, um, a low-fee counseling center uh, that where the training for the new clinicians was based on Buddhist principles and was teaching... um, Buddhism and Buddhist contemplative development and various things and then uh, started teaching at the IBS and founded and completed my PhD with a focus in Zen practice and Zen studies. So um, 
I started my work at IBS when they wanted to start a Buddhist chaplaincy program within the graduate school. So, you know, it's important for you to know that about me because uh, although I have a clinical background and I did CPE and I live in the world of chaplaincy and I train chaplains and we develop uh, what I think is primary. I, I asked Jennifer once what did she think the most important thing was about getting a graduate degree in um, professional chaplaincy, meaning long-term, 40 hours a week. And she said, being able to sustain yourself over the lifetime of your practice. I did not expect her to say that, but that's what she said. So part of what I do is to help people establish the roots of what it means to practice, um, to be grounded in the Dharma, to articulate what I, I happily use the word theology. Some people don't like it, but I'm perfectly willing to use it. To establish your um, the theological roots for interfaith chaplaincy. Um, to, to mine the teachings and understand what guides you, what sustains you, what supports you. So um, it's important that you know that, that I haven't been in the trenches in the hospital, although I, I did work in hospitals in a previous life in another capacity. So does that make sense to you all? Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you a little story. And this did come from my um, work as a chaplain. So listen to this. Just listen to this. A four-year-old boy dies suddenly and inexplicably on a sunny Sunday afternoon in the hospital emergency room. His father, pushed beyond endurance, rages at the staff the world, God. His mother sits stunned and silent, holding his hand. Their world is undone. I enter the scene with nothing but my own being. No formulas or stock phrases can possibly meet such a time. How does one meet such profound suffering? I think this is the question that we ask ourselves, right? How does one, if we can meet that kind of suffering, I know many of you are working in prisons, so we're talking about isolation, being defined as other, being defined as a prisoner, not a human being who's enduring a certain circumstance. How, does, how do we meet, what do we draw on? So I think I would say that this question lies at the heart of our pastoral care. How? 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 In Zen practice, we talk about how a lot. Not so much why, but how. We say, what is the whole of the Buddha Dharma? An appropriate response. In this moment, in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. So I think you're all very well, well aware of this, right? that we are in this moment and responding in this moment. So we want to turn to the Dharma and uh, look for the roots of this. 
There's a wonderful book that um, some of you may be familiar with. It's called Educating Clergy, Teaching Practices and Pastoral Imagination. And this is what they have to say. Leaders responsible for maintaining and renewing and sometimes transforming the intent of their religious traditions for new situations and circumstances is what we do. So we're transforming, drawing on, and transforming the teachings. So the first question we ask if we want to do Buddhist pastoral care is there's lots of pastoral care. Any good pastoral care um, provider (coughs) listens carefully, lets go of their own agenda, and shows up for the other person. So some of you ask about how do you uh, meet the other person when they're a different faith than you, or you have no faith, or they have no faith, or whatever, right? I'm not, I'm, we're going to talk about Buddhist pastoral care today, but I'm not assuming you all, all of you are card-carrying Buddhists. Is that true? Is everybody here a card-carrying Buddhist? Who is, who is not? <laughs> but there's something about the tradition that draws you, right? It says, I want to go and study with these teachers, I want to I want to learn something about. So that's what we're talking about today, but I'm so I'm I'm saying what do you draw on from the Buddhist tradition? So the first thing we want to say is well what do you think Buddhism is? So anybody have an answer? What you think what do you think Buddhism is? Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't be shy. Really? Tending to the suffering of all beings, okay? Yeah? I'm just going to say liberation from suffering. Liberation from suffering, okay. A worldview of connectivity and interdependence. Connectivity and interdependence, okay. Anything about awareness in here? Paying attention? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you know? How do you know what Buddhism is? How do you know? Did you read it in a book? Huh? Amongst other things. Clearly, my my hearing aids are. I'm, I just got these, and clearly they're not quite up to this part yet. How do you know what what faith is? How do you know what guides you? There you go. Yeah? How do you know what you rely on in your life? Huh? What did you say? How do you know what you rely on in your life? Anything about introspection, paying attention to your own inner world? Past experience. Past experience. Present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. What works? What works? Yeah. So over over your lifetime, you know, like going down blind alleys, um, falling off of cliffs, um, you know, falls down, gets up, right? Oh, that doesn't work. Okay, I'm going to try this one. Oh, boy, that was a... I, I bring this up because we talk about Buddhism as if it's some... Um, it is, you know, I mean, you can go off into philosophies forever. 
you can, you know, how many bodhisattvas dance on the head of a pin? But it goes back down, and when we're talking about applying it to chaplaincy, it goes back down into what do you rely on? And how do you know that? And that turns us back to our own hearts and minds and our lived experience. That's what we carry into the room with us, right? How many of you are unfamiliar with suffering in this room? How many of you don't know suffering? I, I would bet that we would have some pretty telling stories if we went around and really opened our hearts to one another, right? These are the, this is where, this is what, where, what you return to, what you, the kind of mud that you build. I saw a program recently about um, ancient architecture and uh, this uh, meeting place in the, mid, in, the, in the Southwest that these men rebuild every year out of mud, out of adobe. That's what we're doing all the time. We're rebuilding this, this holy place in ourselves out of mud, out of our lives, out of, you know, what is it? Water, clay, water dirt, and, and hay. So I want us to think about Buddhism in that way. I want us to think about establishing the foundation of our of our service in that way, so that it becomes less. I mean, you know, I'm going to talk here a little bit about um, principles, but it, if it doesn't connect back to our own lives, it's it's worthless in my opinion. It's just more stuff and more ideas in your head. But I, we know, you all know, when you walk into a room with someone, ideas are just poof. You know. They're not really what allow us to stand in the face of this kind of suffering, to stand with our bare hands and open heart and be present. So any chaplain is available to everyone in need. There are times when being a Buddhist may be of specific benefit, you know, but most of the time in this country, most of the people that we serve are not Buddhist. So the question becomes, how do you use the roots of Buddhism, this clay and mud of your life, with awareness and actually listen to the other person and speak? Sometimes we get so hung up on listening that we forget we have to speak, which is what some of one of you said, right? But if we don't, if we're just there, we might as well just turn on the robot and send it in the other room. But we're f- when we speak, we speak not just with our words, but with our hands, with our eyes, with our body. This is an embodied body to body. Whether you touch somebody or not, you're, you're body to body in the room with them. So every, every chaplain that's well-trained and committed um, has this foundation and has this commitment to intimacy and um, practices selflessness. Selflessness meaning, I'm not the center of the world here, you are. We're worried about you here. So at the same time that Buddhist spiritual care is has a great deal in common with every other kind, there's also some... Um, 
specific orientations towards Buddhism. One of them has to do with liberation. I'm not saying that you go in to liberate this other person, but when we, if we think of liberation as um, uh, one moment of ease, one moment of peace, one of the things that's true is that we sometimes think we have to have a big impact and see it, but the teachings are that one moment holds the entire universe, right? So if we move into an encounter with the ability to move 360 degrees, with the ability to be there with another person, that can change an entire life, right? Oftentimes, chaplaincy is not over a long period of time, right? It's, it's this moment. It's in an emergency room. It's, you know, if you're in the jail, I know people that work in jails, you mean you have people coming in, they're there for, it's not like long-term prison thing. It's like they're coming in and they're going out. They're coming in, they're going out. So we may think, oh, it doesn't, um, what I'm doing is not important or what I'm doing if I'm not having a long-time relationship with someone is not going to have much impact, right? We diminish that. But if we, uh, I like the word holy, so um, I know some Buddhists don't use that, but I'm all into um, salvation, holy. I never was a Christian, so, you know, it doesn't get mixed up, so I feel perfectly happy using those words, you know. Um, If we uh, invoke holy presence, which to my mind is this vast openness, this tenderness, this bringing the mud of our own lives in contact with the other, that you're opening a door or potentially opening a door with that person so that they can transform their lives in that moment. And you may never know what happens because of your interaction, right? You know, I don't know, has, have even any of you ever have a memory of someone who said something to you sometime or smiled at you sometime or touched your hand sometime and you remember that person and they just went on with their life and they probably don't even know you exist. I have people like that. So we have to think without pressuring ourselves we have to think about the potential of each, um, each moment in that way. Um, the, the basis that I think of in this way from the Buddhist teachings is the uh, bodhisattva. How many of you know what a bodhisattva is? Most. So um, a bodhisattva uh, is um, someone who's dedicated to awakening in this world. Right? I like to think of them as uh, enlightenment workers. So we join the Enlightenment Worker Union and uh, let's see, what's the song, right? The old song. Oh, you can't fool me. I'm working for the union. I'm working for the union. I'm working for the union. Anybody else know it? 
oh, you can't scare me. I'm working for the union. I'm working for the union till the day I die. Okay? So we join with others in the Enlightenment Workers Union, and we don't feel like we carry the world on our shoulders. This is important. When you bind together with other people, with other beings to serve, um, you can rely on their strength and they can rely on your strength and you don't get arrogant. You, you know that you're a human being that's vulnerable, that uh, needs uh, support, that needs to draw on your own inner support and you join the union with others to um, move through this world dedicated to awakening. So there is, um, in the treatise on the Paramis, okay, there is a quote I'm going to give you. It may be familiar to some of you. Through compassion, the great person, Bodhisattva, shakes with sympathy for all. But because compassion is accompanied by wisdom, his or her mind is unattached. Okay? So this, this quivering this compassion, this connection, you know, we vibrate with the compassion of others. But I was, I was at a conference um, last year in Tel Aviv, and one of the fellows that was there with me was uh, from uh, was a Greek Orthodox um, priest, and he went into the roots of the Greek word compassion. Now, we, we translate it to the word compassion, but sometimes we can get lost in compassion. But the Greek, the sense of the Greek word is walking beside somebody. So sometimes we say compassion, we should feel everything, we should, you know, we should open our heart to everybody. Well, good luck with that. You know, you are going to be fried real quick. So yes, you open your heart. But if you're not walking beside someone, you can get swamped. And this is so important to understand because if we don't understand this, we burn out. So we have to be very careful in the way we understand compassion. And the Bodhisattva vow is, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. Right? I vow to open my heart to everyone. I vow to sustain the way. So... Um, the reason I bring this up is because using our minds and investigating the teachings and actually um, cultivating a sense of things is, uh, is very important. We become intimate with our own humanity and we come back to what Dogen, the founder of my particular flavor of Buddhism in Japan, uh, called Fu-e. Fu-e means not knowing. So not knowing is not cluelessness, okay? I think we understand this. It's not like, oh, I don't know. It's um, a vigorous stance. It's beginner's mind. It's an open mind. It's saying, I have the strength to enter into a situation um, with the intention of alleviating suffering and I'm not going to cling to my own version of what I think should happen. Now, what that means in, in practical terms in some ways is that you're awake to the entire environment. When you walk into a room, let's just say 
uh, you're in a hospital room. You pay attention. Who's there? Who's not there? Has the, is this a child's room? Has the father, is the father working so hard that he never has time to come see? Do the nurses even know who he is? Uh, where's grandma? Where's, you know, has, does mom look like she's gotten any sleep? What's the pain quality? Are there any flowers or cards in the room? Are there not? Um, are people walking by? Is there a set, is, what, what culture is this, is this, are these people? What are their beliefs? What, what are their experiences? How do they fit into the hospital? Is this a teaching hospital? Is this a local hospital? Is this a hospice? All of these things, you're saying, I'm not walking through this door with a fixed view. I'm going in and I am going to pay attention to everything because I need to be spontaneous. I need to respond in this moment. And then you pick up clues and you build a very flexible sense of what's happening in this moment, right? This is, when we return to the Buddhist teachings, this is what tells us that this is what we should be doing, right? Because we want to respond effectively. So if this person is saying, pray with me, if this person is saying, I, w- I don't know why this happened to me. This is theodicy, right? Do you all know about theodicy? Some of you know about theodicy, I bet. God is good. God is all-powerful. Bad things happen. Figure that one out. It's a koan, right? It's a challenge for most Christians that we have contact with. Why did this happen to me? How could God let this happen to me? One of our alums who um, then went on to do CPE at Alta Bates said, I was so relieved as a Buddhist that I don't have to answer that question. (laughs) But she became very, very interested in it because it was central for so many of the people that she served. So you listen for, is there a why question happening here? How, what is this person's, if this person has a, a relationship with God, what's the quality of that relationship? What do they need to explore? Can I explore it with them? Should I get somebody out? Do they need a Catholic priest to do the uh, a blessing? What, what is happening here? So the question then is, how do I become, like Shanti Deva says, uh, May I, be a, may I be a bridge, may I be a boat, may I be a lamp, placed close beside them. May I, be, may I be what this person needs. Now, sometimes you can't be that person. So, for example, when I was at UCSF, there was a father who, uh, his, his son was dying, and he was absolutely convinced that... Um, his, uh, Jesus was going to not only save his son, but restore his son's brain, which had basically disintegrated. And um, he needed someone to pray with him in a very particular way that I couldn't meet. I didn't know enough. I didn't, you know, there was not a consonance there. And so I went and found, again, we're all in the union together. I went and found somebody who was well-versed in his version of faith that could serve this man well. But for the most part, it doesn't, people aren't really interested in what our faith is. They, they're interested in what their faith is. 
And so that's what we do. We learn enough about most faiths to be of service, and we serve them in the way that they need. And sometimes um, you have to do some your own ethical questions about that, which is an interesting exploration. I won't go into that today. How long are we supposed to go for? Okay, okay, great. Um, so the Bodhisattva vow says, may I be what this person needs and may it be placed close beside them. Now to do that, you have to be grounded in, your, in yourself, right? You can't, you're n- if you become a chameleon and you forget who you are, that doesn't work. That's, a, that's another recipe for burnout. So you ground yourself in the mud of your own life and your own faith and then you build the bridge to this other person and you learn there's n- there's no way to learn this other than to do it right for those of you that have been doing it you can't prepare 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 and then think you're going to like have it right you have to throw yourself in and just do it is that yeah, I see heads nodding. Yeah, yeah. I think there's more preparation. Huh? I think there's more preparation. What's that? Suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Good one, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean about about knowing the mud of your own life, building the, the foundations out of the mud of your own life, not some hypothetical, you know, so we we develop this, and we have the strength to not know and to be flexible. We say, grounded in fu'e, grounded in not knowing, we say, what do I notice? What is present? What is lacking? Do I sense compassion and kindness, a measure of peace? What are the aff- 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 affective states? What is the shape of the suffering? What craving do I notice? What's the, is there craving here? Is there an a, a obsessive attachment here? Now, I say obsessive attachment because clearly there's going to be attachment. Clearly, if someone is losing their son or their daughter or their grandmother, there's love there. There's attachment there. There's that sweetness there. But when I say obsessive attachment, I mean um, the fear and the clinging that comes from not being able to face impermanence. Some of what our, uh, at least two of our students recently have been doing is really studying, um, uh, I'll just mention this briefly, Sharon Kaufman's work. Anybody familiar with Sharon Kaufman's work about the medical system, the current medical system, and the denial of death that's that's happening in so much of it and the uh, how it relates to uh, pharmaceutical companies and medical equipment companies. I mention this because um, if we don't think systemically, as Buddhists, we know we're a part of a system, right? Interdependence. We're not isolated beings. And so we have to... Um, we have to be aware of the systems that working, we're working in, the racist systems, 
we have to be aware of poverty. We have to be aware of the drivers, as Kaufman talks about, for the medical system, the drivers that shoot people down certain choice points before they even know it. So um, I don't want to get too much into this, but what I do want to say is when we walk into a patient's room, we do not leave the rest of the culture and the systems behind. We are operating in that system. And one of the points uh, that a chaplain can, can have is because they have a different position within the system, they can speak in a different way. They can advocate, they can speak up, they can represent a different version of reality than what is so often uh, being uh, reproduced within the, the, the system that you're in. The same is true in prisons. The same is true in any organizational structure that's um, created by our deluded minds and our deluded culture. So we never forget, we never forget to look systemically at what's happening and to think about the bro broader world, to think about what happens when that person leaves the hospital or what happens when that person leaves the jail. So um, please don't um, uh, forget to bring yourself into full relationship with the whole of... Um, So there's a kind of um, simplicity that's paramount. Um, we know about the complexity that we're working in, but we simply come in with this simple um, vision, simple open-hearted vision. In the Mahayana teachings, um, we say the the bodhisattva, the enlightenment worker, um, one of the four things that the uh, bodhisattva gives is fearlessness. So um, that fearlessness is not that you don't have fear. It's that you're willing to enter into anything. There's a wonderful woman, uh, Episcopal, uh, priest named Margaret Gunther, she wrote a, a really great book called Holy Listening. I highly recommend it. And um, one of the things that she says in that book, uh, this is her own theistic language, she says, um, God already knows and I'm not going to fall off my chair. So that's giving fearlessness. That's saying, I'm here to hear anything. You know, you want to tell me about what you did. You want to tell me about what was done to you. You want to tell me you know, that you're angry at God, that you're, this is one of the things why it's nice sometimes if people know we're Buddhist is because they can say things to us that they might not say to someone of their own religious tradition. You know, we're kind of, um, for many people, Buddhists are kind of not really anything. <laughs> and so that, I, I find that a gift, right? So I know I'm something, but it doesn't matter what, what I think. What matters is what they think. And so uh, people will tell you things. So well, one, um, one night I was on call at UCSF and I went to the bedside of a Mormon woman who was um, really struggling because she had unexpectedly come into the hospital 
and um, couldn't take care of her family. And for her, her religious obligation was to take care of her family. So she was not only leaving her, her family, but she was, she was falling down on the job for her religious obligation. And so we talked, and I asked her about um, how she saw Jesus. Who was Jesus for her? And she said, Jesus was love, forgiveness, kindness, complete open-heartedness. So I said, well, how do you suppose Jesus would see you? How do you suppose, what, what would it be like if you looked through Jesus' eyes? Oh, Jesus would love me. Jesus would recognize me. Well, I didn't have to say anything more. She figured it out for herself, right? Sometimes when we go in to, to be with someone, it's as if their, their vision is clouded and it's very dark and they're thirsty and they need, they need water. And so what we do is we join hands with them and we find the pump to the well. And then once they've found the well handle, they can pump it themselves. We don't have to pump it for them. So just through some simple questions that reflected back to this woman what her core faith was, she was able to find the well of her own faith. And then the next morning, you know, the, all the Mormons showed up and she didn't want anything to do with me anymore, which was just fine, you know. So this, by our own presence, we give, we give the Bodhisattva gift of fearlessness. With our awareness of our own frailty, our own needs, you know, we know what that is. So we listen for stories, for assumptions, for hopes, for fears. We listen to the person's language of faith or not. We listen for stories of abandonment, stories of rage. What is it that needs to be healed in this moment? What is it that is our best guess that will be an appropriate response? So we use the language of the person that we're meeting. We are quiet. This is one of the benefits of doing um, meditation practice over a long period of time. And you might come here or go to a another a temple or go to a um, anywhere, Quaker meeting hall, but spending time f- becoming deeply familiar with what it's like to be quiet, to listen to your own heartbeat, to allow yourself to just be present is a huge gift for any kind of interaction with people. Don't, wouldn't you agree, those of you that have been doing it for a while? Not all Buddhists meditate. You know that, right? Not all Buddhists meditate. And there are other forms of practice that also have to do with deep listening. Uh, uh, For example, in Jodo Shin Buddhism, they say the Nembutsu, which is a way of listening. It's all about listening. So there's many ways to quiet, to, to become familiar with quiet, and they're not strictly Buddhist even. 
but I, I highly recommend these practices of just paying attention, just learning to be silent. So that when you encounter another person, you can um, you have available to you this capacity to be quiet, quiet internally, quiet externally. Um, okay. Does anybody have questions or comments? I've been talking for a while now. Maybe we should... Um, Shanti Deva. Shanti Deva uh, wrote a wonderful text. Of, he's an Indian philosopher, saint, um, called The Guide to the Bodhisattva Way. That's the English translation. It's a tremendously challenging text. For those of you that are familiar with it, I'm sure you're familiar with it, yeah. Um, the text, um, the chapter on um, patience is, it'll really get your goat if you... Have, have, how many people here have read Shantideva? So some of you are familiar with it. Um, but anyway, one of the, it's, a, it's in verses, and one of the verses is about the Bodhisattva's vow. Bodhisattva's vow. May I be a bridge, may I be a boat, may I be a lamp for all beings um, placed close beside them. About the non-meditative techniques. Oh, sure. Um, well, let's see. How about picking flowers and arranging them? Well, How about <laughs> specifically about Buddhists who non-meditative? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I can say a little bit about the Jodoshin tradition, and there's also other other uh, ways that people do dance. People do. Um, you know, one of our temple members has been. Uh, doing ikibana, which is flower arranging for the last 30 years, and part of her practice is gathering flowers, arranging them, and then every week this vision of beauty shows up in the hallway on the, on the way into the zendo. It's just, and, and, and we live in it, we, we don't live well, sometimes I feel like I live, but we, um, our, our center is in a building with other people. And when they walk by, they walk by the glass door and they see uh, this ikibana arrangement. That's a practice. It's a nourishing practice for her. It's about quietness. It's about sensitivity to the elements. Uh, it's about bringing together something, creating beauty. I'm going to recommend another book to you, and then I'll say something out about uh, which is called um, Bringing Zen Home. Uh, and it's by Paula Arai, and it's a book about the uh, lives and practices of uh, Japan- contemporary Japanese uh, Zen women Zen practitioners. And it's all about lay practice. It's all about creating altars in the home, about chanting, about um, cooking, about cleaning, about all of these things that can be meditative practices. So in Zen, we're, we're really big on cleaning and cooking. You know, some people say we're a food cult, you know. Um, uh, but any, any of these practices, when done from, with, the, with the right heart and mind, are meditation practices. You know, if you have somebody over for dinner and you start with, you know, a friend of mine who lives in Santa Fe gave me this beautiful 
pot that's uh, hand-built with mica in it. You know, if you're going to cook beans for your family, that can be a meditation practice, right? So I want us to think outside the box about these things because and think about what nourishes us. So ikipana, um, you know, those kinds of arts, calligraphy, um, chanting. So in, uh, in Jodo Shin Buddhism, um, they say the Nenbutsu, which is Nama, Namu Amida Butsu. So that's invoking the name of Amida Buddha, not Shakyamuni Buddha. And, um, and it is understood to be a call and response with Amida Buddha. And it is actually Amida Buddha who is saying this. So that there is not a, um, although people do sit quietly, it's not a meditation practice. But if we look at uh, many different traditions, there's lots of ways that we practice that are not about seated meditation. And what I really encourage you to do is think about what those ways are for you. Because seated meditation is, you know, it's the kind of touchstone for most Buddhist practices. But it's not the only one by far. So um, be creative and think about it and uh, Paula also wrote a wonderful um, uh, article called Zen Rags. It's in a new book called Zen and Material Culture. And um, she uh, basically uh, talks about the practice of the rag, how the rag is always available, doesn't matter what you use it for, the life of the rag. And, and, it's, and this is another, uh, this is a particular Zen focus, which is that each, each element of our world is giving itself to the world. Dogen Zenji says world, the world is worlding the world. And so if we, um, if we move from that point of view, if we pay attention to things from that point of view, gratitude is a natural response, right? And I cannot, under, I cannot overstate the importance of gratitude in our lives attend to gratitude, to, to pray over our food, to say, you know, innumerable labors brought us this food. Boy, this is something, isn't it? So we look at our lives in that way and we cultivate these many, many practices that can sustain us and, um, and that can shape the way we interact with the people that we're, we're doing our best to serve. Yeah, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Can you say a little bit more? You mentioned this. I'd be curious to hear more about <clears throat> building relationships in the context of the difference between, say, a hospice volunteer who maybe also has palliative care, uh-huh. long-term relationships, right. and then as a chaplain, Possibly a relationship might be ten or fifteen minutes. Yeah. Big difference. There. Huge difference. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that. Um, well, I think the um, the the beauty of these short-term relationships is that we know this is it. I mean, that's always true, isn't it? <laughs> We're not getting. We we can't cross the same stream twice, right? This is it. Um, 
So there are certain skills we want to build. Uh, we often don't know this person. We haven't established trust with this person. Um, if you build trust with someone over time, uh, you can call them on things sometimes, or you can bring up something and with patience maybe come back to it again. Maybe there's something that's unresolved that they mentioned and then they dance away from. And if you have a long time, you might say, you know, what about that? Or shape the interaction, bring in a picture that might evoke something or, you know. Uh, when you're in a short term, um, you're just, you're walking in and you're alert. You know, you're really alert to all of the different dimensions of a situation. And you're, you're um, making your best effort to really meet that person. Now, one of the things that happens in emergent situations is that a lot of times all of the facades are torn off. You know, that person is naked to you. They're naked to themselves. They're naked to everybody. And so you can, if you can meet them there, sometimes very deep things can happen very quick. Right? You know? You know, somebody, like I remember one couple who were both um, really successful high-powered lawyers in San Francisco. And um, their, I can't remember what the circumstances is, but their child became really sick, really quiet, really quick. And uh, um, I was talking to the father, and he was just like, all he'd done, and all of the safety, all of the... Everything that he had built, all of his imagination of what life was, was toast. You know, and he said, I feel like I've entered a different world. And I said, you have, right? So I tried to meet him in that new world and for him to understand that he wasn't alone in that new world. Now, I never saw the man again. I don't know whether what I said was helpful or not. Oh, and you will fail. Right, you all know that. Over and over again, you will fail. So just, that's just a given. Um, so there's something, you know, it depends on the circumstance, and, but there's something about coming in with this willingness to go all the way to the bottom with somebody, to hear their, what they're saying. Not that you push them to say it, but that you're willing to God already knows that I'm not going to fall off my chair. You know, that you, you come in with that. So um, those, you know, that can sometimes happen in short terms. But sometimes it's just uh, a kind word, a smile, you know, um, and it's, it's very uh, quiet and minor. But minor is great, isn't it? You know, lots of minors... Make up something really important. I, I just think that the, the, the not defining what can happen in a short period of time is the most important thing. Just, you know, knowing that the whole world can turn on a dime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to share something. I loved your term, vigorous, um, not knowing or, or Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, vigorous stance on not knowing. And it made me think of this, and I have to pull up my phone, so forgive me, but I'm going to read a really brief quote from this author 
author named Catherine Schultz. Um, uh, she's a social scientist. And the book is called Being Wrong. Being Wrong? Being Wrong. Oh, I love it's it. Great, That's a great it's title. A great but the uh -huh. short quotation says, a whole lot of us go through life assuming that we're basically right basically all the time about basically everything. <laughs> about our political and intellectual convictions, our religious and moral beliefs, our assessment of other people, our memories, our grasp of facts. Uh -huh. As absurd as it sounds when we stop to think about, about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming that we are very close to omniscience. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'll have to get that book. That's really great. You know, because, um, you know, one of my teachers said to me once, um, do your best and then apologize. <laughs> now, apologize doesn't mean, you know, groveling like, oh, you know, I'm like this worm. Please forgive me for being alive. It's, it's, I did my best. Next moment, next moment, next moment. And assume that you're not, that you, you know, you don't ha you're not omniscient. Unless somebody's hiding something in here. I think we're, none of us are omniscient. We are all, as the Jeroshin people say, uh, foolish human beings. So we embrace that. And it's in that that we meet people. Other questions? I'll look at my little list here. Yeah. So something that some, um, I feel like can be a, a strength but also a um, challenge is a capacity I feel like I have to see things from other perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and then you mentioned this chameleon thing, and, and I sometimes wonder if, I don't know if it's in the same category of not knowing or just... Um, this sort of hollowness of like my essence when I'm with people in their essence uh -huh. and just wondering if you could give some sort of um, supportive words around yeah. that cultivation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, you know, each of us has to look at our own tendencies and, and know that we'll be working with them for the rest of our lives. You know, we have what I call core kleshas. Kleshas are afflictive emotions, but most of us, over the years of practice, we take care of the easy ones, and then we're left with the tough ones, right? And those tough ones we're going to be working on for the rest of our lives. This is my experience after 40 years or whatever. So um, th it's really good that you know that, really good, because if, if you don't know it, mostly my experience is the world is quite happy for you to keep adapting yourself to death, right? It's like, oh, he's so nice. And one of my other teachers said, don't fall for the tyranny of niceness, right? So um, if you know that's your tendency, then you can say, okay, how do I actually do this? Where's my fierceness? Where is... Um, Fudo, you know, you know about Fudo. Fudo is a um, uh, bodhisattva, a, care, a kind of embodiment of wisdom and compassion in the Mahayana pantheon. And he's like, like this. And he's fierce compassion. So there has to be a way to find that groundedness in ourselves. And to me, that's often accompanies a certain kind of fierceness. You know, certain kind of, and this has to do with boundaries. Two people were talking about boundaries earlier. It has to do with knowing 
this I can do, this I am, and from this ground, I extend the bridge. From this mud, I extend the bridge to you, and then I come back. Right? So, um, the feeling of going out and coming back, and going out and coming back. Sometimes this is, I mean, believe me, you'll, if you take the class with me, and you know, we'll hear a lot about misunderstandings of no self. And a lot of times people think that the teachings of no self in Buddhism mean no self exists. No permanent self exists. No eternal self exists. No independent self exists. But a dependently arisen self most definitely exists. So we need to get to know that self, cherish that self, support that self, not cling to that self. And that's where we start to build a foundation that's both strong and totally free, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's really great that you see this because a lot of times we don't see it and then, and then we um, expend ourselves and we're, we burn out. So good luck, you know, kind of touching in on that and, and seeing the ways that you know your own ground. Yeah. Uh-huh. So somebody, yeah. Kind of to answer, um, because at the beginning you mentioned the question like what we rely on, so I was contemplating that. And I feel that when walking into any um, difficult experience or situation, I rely on my intentions. I Uh rely on, um, I try to steady myself by form, you know, just really, you know, like asking myself, what is my deepest intention? I'm I'm sorry. What is my deepest intention here? You know, is it to be present and just to hear this person as best as I can? But um, something that came up for me um, through the written assignment was that like, I, I was not raised with any um, with a Christian background or any religious background. Uh-huh. And I, after practicing and encountering the Dharma, there is, I realized that I do have this belief that there is no God. And I'm guessing that a lot of the people, you know, some of the people that I'll be working with, they do. And I yeah. just feel this discomfort about, like, like I don't know not only how to be with them, but also, like, like this is just something I don't believe in. And yeah. I, I realized through writing the paper, like, I, this is a belief that I have, yeah. and I, I feel that I, you know, what she was describing, like, I feel that I'm right. <laughs> um, yeah. There's this a sense is of, like, this is, this is what I, what I, you know, and, I mean, maybe I don't know. There is a sense of, like, maybe, like, mm, you know, maybe, maybe there is something that I don't know about, and there is that. There, I do have, mm-hmm. you know, that also, um, but see, this yeah. is um, where one of the teachings of the of the Buddha is to not cling to view, right? right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you don't have a view; it means you don't cling to it. And when you're um, when you're with another person, and and your uh, your your intention, as you said, your intention is to uh, provide um, support to them so that they can find the pump handle. Um, it doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong. Or I mean, if what if the way this is where you start, this is where you investigate what are toxic beliefs and what are nourishing beliefs. And um, there's a way, there's ways of understanding that you can investigate what are toxic religious beliefs. And that's an ethical decision you might want to make that you do not want to support someone in toxic religious beliefs. 
So, for example, if they believe that um, they have, I don't know, this is ridiculous, but say they have a religious belief that they should be able to beat other people up. Well, that might be their pump handle, but you're not going to like help them do it. But if their belief is that they, um, th- they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and he is the risen Savior, why not? I mean, I say to myself, yeah, I have my opinion. I think I know what, what's going on. I think Buddhism is right. But who knows? You know, I may die and there's Jesus, you know. What do I know? I guess... Uh, <laughs> exactly. But the point is, when we feel we're right, we, we tuck that into a place in ourselves and say, yeah, that's, what I, that's my faith, that's what I believe. But that's not the point right now. The point is, what is going to be healing for this person? Right. I mean, through writing the paper, I recognize it just as I, you know, cling to my beliefs in some ways that other people also believe that they are right. Yeah. And, but I guess I was, um, this is not in the chaplaincy world, but like I was part of a, I joined a young adults group, like kind of a therapeutic group um, for uh-huh. the first time. And there was a, a man there, a young man there who said that, um, you know, he's Christian and he said that he believes that he is bad, you know, he believes in yeah. sin. And I just, I don't know, I felt, mm, mm, kind of sad or compassion or something when he said that. So, Well, I think the thing is, is that um, any religious tradition is complex. And one of the things that you can do in understanding another person's faith is like I did with this Mormon woman, is connect them, help them connect to the healing vision of their own faith. Um, And, you know, this is the other thing where people were talking about a crisis of faith. Uh, When I was at UCSF, one of um, this man who was convinced that Jesus was going to um, save his son and return him to his previous life. I went to my supervisor, who was a very wise man, Ron Seeger, and I said, I'm really concerned because not only is this man going to lose his son, he's going to lose his faith. Like, what? And what he said to me is, um, people's faith changes. And that was so helpful to me. It was like, oh, right, we're not stuck with one vision of reality, you know? And, And so then the question becomes, how do we companion someone through that transformation in their faith. And it might be this young man gives up on Christianity or who knows. But the skill for us is to be a compassionate companion, a a listening companion who can help somebody return to the roots of their faith that are nourishing and positive for them. And then they they might, I don't know, convert to Judaism or become a Baha'i or pick up the Dharma or the point is we any any tradition can be toxic. We as Buddhists are certainly not immune by any means to um, toxic beliefs. Um, it's not hard to find them. So the question is how do we I, th- I believe it's Fowler that talks about uh, I have 
James Fowler has a book, a really wonderful book on stages of faith. Um, but there's other one, I, I can't remember the writing that I have that's about really questions to ask about uh, our own faith and other people's faith to see is it is it wholesome is it life-giving is it joyful oh and you know you know one of the other truths about buddhist about bodhisattvas bodhisattvas are not grim <laughs> now, one of the and this is important one of the primary teachings about the bodhisattvas the bodhisattvas joyfully follow the path so if we're missing joy in our practice something's off if we get grim and tight and rigid, we're, we're missing the boat somehow. So um, a good laugh and a sense of humor is really, really essential. Other questions? Let's see if there was anything... Um, Um, so I hope I just want to uh, take one more minute to talk about this question of talking of, 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 of coming forward <clears throat> if you if you don't uh, risk coming forward in my opinion you're abandoning your responsibility to the person that you're with so it's easy to just listen and it, that is absolutely the foundation absolutely but no matter what you do, you're speaking. Even if you're quiet, you're speaking. Do you, do you see what I mean? So um, sometimes what's, what's really needed is direct speech. Sometimes what's needed is a touch. Sometimes what's needed is kind speech. But um, consider it, uh, uh, you know, uh, the bodhisattva comes forward. It's, you know, we come forward. We're not just receding. So um, this is this is part of the art of learning how to be with people. Is to it's an art, and one of the nice things about an art is that we can do it till we die. Right? We keep getting better. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more about coming forward? Do you mean like taking action and not just listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you ask questions. You don't go in with a whole boatload of questions. But you might ask a question, or you might say, well, you know, tell me about, you know, just like I did with that Mormon woman, right? What is Jesus to you? Yeah. What I find is by listening to them, the questions come. Yeah. The questions just come. Yeah. Read that and find that. Let them. Yeah. And this is another good point, is that... uh, uh, when I first trained as a clinician, my first supervisor said to me, the most important thing is to be less anxious to, than the person you're trying to help. <laughs> <laughs> you will be anxious. So figure out a way to work with your anxiety because you will be anxious. I'm telling you, you know, I had been a therapist for a while when I did my, uh, when I did my um, chaplaincy training. And I was, you know, going up to that door I was like, whoa, this is not, this is serious practice here. This is not knowing practice. This is, 
Fu'e, big time. And um, so you can, you don't think you're operating from the neck up, right? You listen, you listen with your full body and you pay attention to what comes forth from you. And the questions will come, the, what will come. You can trust that instead of trying to figure it out. Yeah? Yeah. But if you're, you won't ever hear those questions that are coming from here. Okay. Do you have a story to share about holding the question of why? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my family? Um, I find myself wanting to absolve self-blame as soon as I hear Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the impulse to fix, isn't it? Uh-huh. You know, and we're not there to fix. We're there to companion, and we're not there to teach. This is important. You've got to know what you're doing, what your job is. If you're a minister and a teacher, and that's your job with that person, then you do that. Like uh, one of my colleagues who's been a Buddhist minister for about almost 60 years now, he wrote a book, and he has some vignettes in it where he talks about things. And... Um, he talks about this woman who, who anyway, it's within their, their tradition, but he, she was going along pretty well, and then her faith, her, her, um, her um, health took a turn for the worse, and all of her doubts came up, right? So as her, as her minister, he said, there's no time for that now, right? Ow. Not Al. You know, it brought her back. But, yeah, absolutely, because there was such intimacy and trust there. And that's what she wanted him for. She wanted him there as a representative of a tradition. So the role of therapist is one thing. The role of Buddhist teacher is another thing. Buddhist minister teacher is another thing. The role of chaplain is another thing. So we have to be, we have to know what we're, what our, there's a mandala of care. We have to know where we fit in the mandala of care and then be that fully. And we have to be aware that our anxiety pushes us to want to fix it, right? Oh, if I just give you this, tell you this, you'll be all right, right? <laughs> so we have to breathe, step back, wonder, open our heart, be with, I mean, we know what it's like when somebody comes in to try and tell us what to do, right? Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> I certainly have. It's like, oh, shut up. So the why, is, the why is this place of not knowing. It's really a place of companionship and, and allowing the person to sink into that and find their own way to a different vision of faith that you don't know what it's going to be you don't know what their new faith is going to be but it's kind of like you know they're disintegrating and then something else is going to come together and you're there with them yeah (laughs) I have a closing question but let's see if there's any burning anybody else Last chance. Great. 
So when we have a guest speaker, I like to ask them a, a question. Um, I ask the, all of our guest speakers the same question. I've asked you this before, but it's oh, been but a couple years. But I forgot. Years. That's yes. a good thing. That's good. So fresh mind. Mm-hmm. So um, you have been practicing in this field for quite some time. If you were to meet um, a Jaku who was beginning to enter this field, mm. what would you say to her now, or what do you know now that you would offer to yourself? Because many of the folks here, whether it's accurate or not, feel like I'm just beginning, mm-hmm. you know, and that may or may not be true. But mm-hmm. so, uh, what would you have said to yourself, or wish you'd known? I, I think I would say trust yourself. Trust your own heart. Trust your own life. Huh? Why? That's a why question. <laughs> I'm a how girl. <laughs> okay. I'll answer a why question. Trust is the most important thing. Trust and faith are the most important thing. Sheen, we say, sheen. Um, not sheen mind, sheen trust. It means um, resting completely in the, in the truth of who you are, in the deepest possible way that you are. Not what you think you are, but what you are. And without, uh, the, the deeper we entrust ourselves, that the more vital we are and the more able we are to be with others. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure as always to be with a group of really dedicated, wonderful people. Yeah. I'm just so pleased as punch that this this program continues and grows and I mean, you know, it's really fabulous. Really wonderful. We're going to uh, break for lunch. Are you taking off or joining us? Or oh, I can join you for a few minutes. Like yeah. stay for a while? And um, if anybody has any questions about um, IBS or the GTU, I know you have two GTU people here, but if you um, have any questions about our program, please feel free to ask. And you brought some brochures, too. I do. I brought some okay. information I'll put okay. out there. Or you can, yeah. So we'll take a lunch break, everybody, um, for, for an hour. Oh, my name? Uh, I have some cards, too, here. Uh, yeah, so I'll leave some cards uh, somewhere. Jaku? Kinst. Kinst, K-I-N-S-T. Kinst. Excellent question. What's your name? <laughs> okay, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.